Way up in the mountainous slopes in Europe, Africa and Asia, one of the world's rarest vultures soars high above rock and snow in search of a meal. At first glance, you could be forgiven for thinking you've spotted some mythological creature. The orange-tinted feathers and diamond wedge-shaped tail are more akin to stories of dragons than vultures. Indeed, some believe that this species could be the inspiration for the legends of the fiery phoenix. But this is a species adapted to glide high above the steepest slopes across their range, using their keen eyes to scan for a meal. Like most vultures, they're primarily scavengers, and their favourite meal, for which they've become most famous, is perhaps not what you'd expect. Hello, I'm Tom Morath. I'm the Deputy Head of Living Collection at the Hawk Conservancy Trust, and whether it be vultures or falcons, owls or eagles, I've a passion for birds of prey and understanding their place in the natural world. Our podcast, Nature's a Hoot, is a way to delve deeper into the world of these winged predators, to understand their natural history, their current status in the wild, and how we can support them through conservation efforts into the future. This time, I'll be discovering more about one of the most striking yet endangered species of vulture in the world, the bearded vulture. It's safe to say that the bearded vulture is one of the largest species of vulture worldwide. Weighing in at over 5 kilograms, and with a wingspan of more than 2.5 metres, they appear to dominate the air around them. During the breeding season, they protect a territory of between 200 and 400 square kilometres in the hope that they can raise their chicks without fear of disturbance or predation from other animals. Despite their size, however, they seem to be an unknown species to many, and less than loved by some of those that do know them. Throughout their history, they've undergone significant persecution as a result of misidentification, with some viewing them as powerful predatory birds. Fearing for the lives of young livestock, shepherds in some parts of their range have nicknamed this bird Lamagaya, or Lamb Vulture. Today, ecologists and conservationists are working tirelessly to learn more about this incredible bird and to bring them back from the brink of extinction. The bearded vulture actually uh, looks more like an eagle than a vulture, um, and hence the name bearded eagle in, in the Zulu language in South Africa. Um, it's a very large raptor. It stands about a metre high. It weighs between five and six kilograms, and it's got an incredibly large wingspan of about two and a half metres. Dr Sonia Kruger is an ecologist at Ezenvelo KZN Wildlife in South Africa and she's been monitoring the population of southern African bearded vultures for over 20 years. If there's someone who can tell us more about this fascinating species, it's Sonia. So I'm actually an ecologist with Ezenvelo uh, KZN Wildlife in the Scientific Services Division. It's a provincial conservation agency, and my primary role in this organisation is to provide logical advice to address biodiversity conservation issues in the Maluti Drakensberg Frontier Park and World Heritage Site, and then other smaller protected areas as well. So it's only part of my job to be monitoring um, 
and researching the Southern African bearded vulture, which I've been doing for for over 20 years now. Uh, but I also facilitate and undertake other monitoring programs on other species like eland and otter, for example. So the Cape vulture we monitor together with bearded vulture. They live in probably the highest, coldest pod of, of the country. They have a very small isolated range in Southern Africa, and they live in the mountains of Lesotho in South Africa. So their breeding period is actually incredibly long. They they start in the autumn by mating and nest building. The egg, eggs take another two months to hatch or so, and then the chicks fledge after about four months. But once they fledge, they still hang around the nest site for, for another four months um, in the po- post-fledging dependency period. And they only really leave that territory when the adults are ready to start breeding the following year. They're incredibly long-lived birds as well. They can live well over 40 years. But realistically, they'll probably only survive in the wild for about 20-odd years because of all the threats that they're exposed to. This species has a particular taste for bone. In fact, as far as we know, they're the only bird to feed almost exclusively on it. And we're not talking about small bones either. Huge bones up to the size of sheep vertebrae can be digested by the bearded vulture. Smaller bones can be swallowed straight down, but larger ones require a little more work. For this, they pick them up in their talons and saw hundreds of feet above a rocky area and drop the bone, shattering it into smaller, more palatable pieces. So yes, certainly their diet is made up mainly of bone, which is uh, particularly bone marrow, but they even obtain nutrients from old bones as well. And they are one of the only animals in the animal kingdom, and certainly the only bird species that can process bones. And that's because they have a really acidic stomach that digests that bone quite quickly. So they are scavengers, they only feed on carcasses, they don't hunt their own food. And at these carcasses, they they pick up uh, the bones that they might find in the area after the other species, other scavengers have eaten at the carcass. They've got an incredibly wide gape of about seven centimeters, and they can swallow bones that are about 25 centimeters long and three to four centimeters wide. These are usually leg bones of domestic livestock, such as sheep or goats or small antelope. So that's the size of bone that they ideally can swallow. So I've been lucky enough to watch it only once or twice, though. Uh, they they drop them from huge heights onto rocks, which they, and they break into smaller pieces, which they can then swallow. And these rocks are called ossuaries. That's if the, the pair in a territory, for example, uses the same rock all the time. They're called ossuaries. But funnily enough, there's there's certainly not a lot around or nothing that would obviously look like an ossuary. Obviously, being in the mountains, there's lots of rocky outcrops that they can use. So I think it's more by chance that you see them breaking bones rather than be able to show someone an ossuary and be guaranteed of of watching this. So the bird is actually often called a bone breaker. In some of the European languages, their name means bone breaker. For example, the Spanish call them gibanto huesos, which means uh, bone breaker. It's not common to see, but um, I do know of three territories in our region where we have had trios at some point in the past 20 odd years. So there may be a slightly younger bird that hasn't started breeding yet or one that hasn't got a mate that will then assist another pair. But certainly in our region, it wouldn't be due to a large amount of resources. We've got 
tons of available nest sites. So it, it certainly wouldn't be with that. It's probably because there aren't enough non-breeding adults in the population, uh, which we call floaters. So it's perhaps if if we've noticed if one adult dies, it takes a long time for that adult to be replaced, replaced in the territory, which means that there aren't any adults in the population or very few adults that aren't breeding. So it's, I assume it's it's these individual adults that would then assist pair nearby. Their huge size, resourcefulness and excellent pair bonding do not save them from the many threats that they face. Bearded vultures are often referred to as the most threatened species of vulture in Europe. But across their entire range, they're at risk from poisoning, habitat degradation and nest site disturbance, among other issues. So, yeah, it is critically endangered in southern Africa, and the southern African population also has a unique genetic makeup. So the genetic diversity is very low because the population is isolated and has been isolated for a long time in a very small geographical area. So poisoning is by far the greatest threat uh, to the birds, uh, as well as collisions with power lines, and then potentially also in future collisions with wind turbines. We did track a number of birds over the last few years, and one of the points of tracking them was to see what the mortality factors were. And yeah, poisoning was definitely what killed most of the birds. It's obviously really difficult to find birds in the landscape. It's such a rugged area that they occur in. So you don't often find carcasses of, for example, collisions with power lines. So I'm sure we under-reporting that as a threat. But um, yeah, certainly poisoning is something we were very worried about. And that can be deliberate um, where the birds are killed because the herders might think that they're killing their lambs or traditional healers want to use the vulture parts in traditional medicine. But they also killed um, indirectly because people are poisoning mammalian predators that kill their livestock. And then bearded vultures are unfortunately the unintended victims. And another threat is lead poisoning from ammunition in the carcasses that they are feeding on. Um, this is also quite a big threat. And my research has shown that the lead accumulation in their bones suggests that they, they have a long-term exposure for lead. So that's certainly something we do have to address in the environment as well. So we have a bilateral bearded vulture recovery strategy and action plan that we're implementing in both Lesotho and South Africa. We've got a bilateral task team that oversees the implementation of this plan. So the plan has more than 100 actions, which are required to reduce the threats to the population. But we are focusing on, on those uh, primarily that are going to reduce the mortality, increase their productivity. And then also we're working on a supplementation program uh, with the reintroduction into the wild. So productivity is also something we're concerned about. The birds have quite a low productivity, even though they're able to breed every year that we noticing that they're really only breeding every second year. And then they've got about a 70% success rate, 70, 80% success rate when they do breed. So that uh, puts their productivity at really only one check every second year. But uh, as part of this plan, obviously, as I meant, poisoning is our biggest concern. So that is what we really need to focus on. Uh, we're trying to undertake some training courses to raise awareness around the human wildlife conflict. Um, and managing the impacts of poisoning and also just training people to responding to, to poisoning incidents to try and reduce the number of birds that are killed and also to gather any evidence from, from the crime scene. In terms of the power line collisions, uh, the birds are flying into the power lines predominantly because 
they often look down when they're feeding and not ahead of them. And they're often flying in when it's quite misty, so they don't see the lines against the horizon. So there's there's a number of ways in which you can successfully mitigate power lines so that the birds do see them by putting on flappers, for example. And we've got quite a good partnership with the Endangered Wildlife Trust, which is an NGO locally, and the local electricity provider. Um, they undertake research on the effectiveness of these devices, and they also arrange to retrofit problem lines. And that has been quite successful in reducing uh, threats in certain hotspots. And then speaking of hotspots, we've developed a habitat use model based on the tracking data from all our birds. And that highlights the areas where the birds are spending a lot of their time. So certainly when we get to comment on infrastructure developments, then we, we know which areas should be avoided, for example, for um, wind farm developments. We also need to work with researchers um, and traditional medicine practitioners to better understand the use of vultures in traditional medicine and also work together um, with these individuals to, to try and find a solution because currently the use of these birds in traditional medicine is unsustainable. But maybe in terms of the work we're doing, I can end with a, a good news story is that we've implemented a captive breeding program and we're harvesting eggs from the wild to establish a founder captive stock, which will then become the breeding stock. And it's the chicks from the stock that will be reintroduced in the wild. So it's a program that started in about 2015, and the first birds that hatched from eggs collected in the wild are basically at breeding age now. So hopefully we'll have a, a fledgling to release into the wild within the next year or two. I, for one, am glad that people like Dr Sonia Kruger are around to support species like this magnificent vulture. The bearded vulture is such an interesting species, and we're still learning about them. Adult birds have a mostly white plumage. In recent years, scientists have been working hard to find out why the species deliberately turn this white feathering red. Studies have shown that the coloration change is as a direct result of intentional bathing in soil or water rich in iron oxide deposits. Why? We don't 100% know. Some theories suggest it's to assert dominance over their territory. Iron oxide deposits are few and far between, and hard to find, and so significant flight experience would be needed to find one. So only the toughest, most experienced birds could bathe in them. Another theory suggests that the iron oxide might act as a prophylactic, killing off bacteria around their feathers, eggs and nest sites. Given their lifestyle as a meat-eating scavenger, it adds up. It's important, perhaps now more than ever, that we highlight the weird and wonderful lives of animals like the bearded vulture. It's sobering to know that many species are becoming extinct today before most of us can learn about and appreciate them. Communication about the natural world and encouraging a love and respect for it is key, something we hope to achieve through our flying displays at the Trust. Someone who shares this mission is Ben Rothery, a writer and illustrator with a love for the natural world's oddities. I spoke to Ben about the importance of highlighting the more quirky, less known threatened species and why he's decided to include the bearded vulture in his latest children's book. 
So uh, my name is Ben Rothery and I'm a natural history author um, and illustrator and I'm the owner and creative director of Hidden Planet Studio. It's a through line that goes through all of my books, but it's it's become a bit more focused in this most recent one and, and, and the next one that I'm about to start on. And it's the idea that, you know, in a world where we have so little left of the you know of the of the biodiversity that we had even 50 years ago it's sort of it's vitally important that we look after what's left and that that isn't just charismatic megafauna you know that's not sort of you know pandas and polar bears and elephants and orangutans and tigers and things important and beautiful as they are you know you also have to look after you know sort of some weird moth you've never heard of or you know some animal that is maybe sort of unfairly mischaracterized or misunderstood and so through the books that we produced so far and and and, and certainly weird and wonderful and, and the next one that we might touch upon later as well it's trying to kind of get people to take a second look at something they've never you know they've never heard of or or something that they you know they sort of have a a negative opinion of that's perhaps sort of slightly undeserved so in in the previous book in deadly and dangerous one of the species we sort of focused on you know were spotted hyenas um you know, this is a, you know, is a, is a better hunter than a lion. You know, it does everything a wild dog does, but better. You know, they're convergently evolved. They basically functionally the same animal. They're just descended from different things. But, you know, they're, they're more successful hunters. They're smarter than chimps, or at least in terms of problem solving. But we didn't really realize because they don't have hands. They don't look like us. But if you put a picture, you know, because obviously we have a shop studio. People come in. We've got a picture of a wild dog and a picture of a spotted hyena, but just a portrait. And half the time, people have no idea which one's which. So they just, they've sort of, they, they believe a thing because they've been told to believe a thing, but they don't, they can't even recognize the thing when they look at it. And so we spend a lot of time talking about stuff like that because, you know, in order to protect what you've got left, you have to care about it, but you can't care about what you can't name or don't understand. Talking to Ben, it's clear how passionate he is about giving young people the chance to come face to face with weird and wonderful species like those in his book. I wanted to ask him what he thought about the bearded vulture in particular. Yeah, so I just think they're, made, they're one of my absolute favourites. I basically, I grew up between the UK and South Africa. I've got an Afrikaans mum, English dad, very confused accent. And um, and I saw them in the Drakensberg. So it's, it's there, you know, there's a sort of, there's a population there. But, you know, they're just, yeah. So I, I got to see them sort of growing up. And, and from that point onwards, they were absolutely my favorite bird i think you know i did a school report about them when i was tiny um yeah so they've always been you know just something i've been absolutely fascinated with you know you've got a sort of a vulture that kind of looks like an eagle basically their own thing you know and they've got a tail shape that's not the same as any of the others and there's this whole yeah you know everything and they look like a you know like griffin or a phoenix or you know they're but this idea that you know that they are potentially a, a root somewhere for a for a phoenix, um, you know, as a mythological creature, um, and you can kind of you can sort of see it. You know, it's not that it's necessarily misunderstood hugely in the way that you know, say, a griffin vulture or something, you know, is an ugly cackling. It's not, but you know, it's a perception thing. You know, it's it is on the face of it a very beautiful bird, but it's just something that people don't know about. Um, and so it was one where I was like, I, you know, I really want to put this in. And I have an incredible sort of fact checker that I work with. We work together on every single book. Um, he's a good friend of mine as well. This guy called uh, Nick Crumpton. So he sort of works at um, NHM, um, so Natural History Museum. But he's he's also, you know, an author and 
um, in his own right, and also, but still, you know, a working scientist, you know, still contributes to and publishes papers. So, you know, he kind of keeps me on the straight and narrow. So, and and it helps that you know they are very beautiful to look at, and you know, if, we, if you're looking for something that's strange. Um, they tick that box too. You know, you've got a, a fully feathered bird that decides to, you know, sort of that that behaves like a like a vulture, but it but its diet is basically ninety percent bones, digests the bones completely. And I thought, yeah, I thought it'd be really nice to sort of to try and inspire in people some of the sort of same sense of fascination and wonder that I have for for species in general, but the bit of vulture in particular. Um, by introducing them to it. With two guests this week, I had to ask both Sonia and Ben the same question. If either of you, or both of you, could be a bird of prey, which species would you be, and why? I'd have to be subjective and choose the bearded vulture. (laughs) Apart from it just being such a magnificent um, and beautiful bird, I think um, something I was thinking of this morning, uh, thinking of the species, is they must nest in the most stunning real estate in the country. They nest in the high mountains with on the cliffs with the most beautiful views in the valleys below. So just to have wake up to that view in the morning, it would just be probably the, the best part. And certainly being able to fly and soar over large distances um, and have very few non-human threats, should I say. It's, yeah, they're just living in the most quiet and remote and safe areas, which is, is certainly very attractive. I think it's going to be a peregrine. Speed, speed kills, man. Like, I mean, you know, it's obviously, you know, it's familiar and it's obvious and all the rest of it. But I mean, to be the fastest animal on earth, I mean, it's as somebody that was fairly average when it came to being an athlete in the past, um, the idea to be significantly faster than I was then um, and definitely faster than I am now um, is, uh, yeah, I think I think that's got to be the one, you know. Now, if you're listening on Spotify, I've asked you the same question. Let us know, if you were a bird of prey, which species would you be, and why? We'd love to hear from you. Although the bearded vulture is not a native species in the UK, we have seen them here. In 2020, a bearded vulture named Vigo flew beyond her normal range in the French Alps and landed right here in England. Vigo was in the skies above Lincolnshire and Norfolk, sending British twitchers and vulture lovers alike into a frenzy to spot her. I was not among them, sadly. But I still hold out hope of seeing this species in the wild one day, majestically commanding the skies. But perhaps I won't stand directly underneath them, for fear of falling heavy bones. I'd like to thank my guests, Dr. Sonia Kruger and Ben Rothery, for their time and support in putting this episode together. If you'd like to support the work we do with Vultures in the Wild, donations can be made online. If you'd like to know more about our projects to conserve birds of prey, there's loads more information on our website, hawk-conservancy.org. Loads more bird of prey content can also be found on our social media pages, You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and TikTok. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and perhaps consider leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm.